This is episode 24 of the Welcome Law Podcast. I'm Brent Nelson and, per usual, joined by Rachel Sass. Rachel, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. A, a, little, uh, a little haggard from, from working hard, but that's all a good thing. In the services industry, you want to be working hard, and we've been working hard. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I definitely know that feeling. It's uh, we're, we're midweek and it doesn't feel like just midweek. <laughs> but like you said, it's better to be busy than not busy, right? To be yeah. I'm, I'm always happy to be busy and not bored. Bored is the thing I want to avoid at all costs. Yes, exactly. We're just, uh, we're just, I think, sort of figuring out the virtual school thing. Everybody's oh, doing yeah. it. This is week three. I think everybody has sort of figured out the routine. We're kind of powering through moments where kids are getting frustrated with the Zoom or frustrated with whatever else. But for the most part, like it's working. I, I mean, it remains to be seen like what the result is if, if they're actually learning something, but they're doing, I can say they're doing. <laughs> they're doing it at least. They're powering through too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've seen a whole bunch of these uh, funny memes lately now that school started online of like, you know, kind of like the Instagram versus reality of virtual learning for school. And it's like, oh, here's my kid on their first day of school. And they're all, you know, nice and proper, sit in front of the, the computer screen, all upright and really excited. And it was like, reality. And it's like the kids screaming. You've got like papers everywhere. They're just like tired of the computer. I'm like, yeah, that's probably what a lot of parents are feeling right now, I'm uh -huh. sure. Yeah. I keep seeing the, those pictures on Instagram too of like, the kid and he's like got a huge smile on his face and he's sitting in front of his little computer getting ready to do virtual school I'm like yeah I know I know that moment <laughs> but I also know the five minutes after that moment so, <laughs> <laughs> I, I can read I can read the sub the subplot there oh goodness <laughs> but you can power through it it's it's online learning for parents now too right <laughs> yes precisely that's exactly what it is well Tonight, we are joined by AJ Price. AJ is a wealth advisor at Strategic Wealth Partners. AJ is a CPA. He's a CFP. He's a uh, Illini alum, uh, and I'm sure can uh, fill us in on what's happening with the Illinois sports teams here. And I, since we're, we're out of it, you know, the Pac-12 is like shut down. So I'm curious to see like what's happening in his neck of the world. And AJ is somebody that we've worked with and really appreciate and somebody that we think is uh, a sharp, sharp guy, knows what he's talking about. And so AJ, of course, we're pleased to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Great to be here, Brent and Rachel. And just so you know, the Illini sports teams for the fall have been canceled as well. So All canceled. Oh, no. Uh, yeah. Hopefully well, in time for basketball. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. They haven't, I don't, I, I don't know. Did the Pac-12 cancel sports for 2021 too? I haven't heard that far. I know I just, the, the football was definitely confirmed. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody I know that had football tickets, I know was, was told that they weren't going to be having their tickets. Although I wasn't sure that they were at the like pre cancellation, all of that excited about upping their subscriptions for the, the football mm. ticket season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I'm so I'm a big SEC fan. My husband's originally from Georgia. And like the SEC kind of still has their thing going on. Like it's just I think 
I think it's just their conference. But so everyone's been speculating, like, are they, like, what are they going to do afterwards? Like, is there going to be a national championship? And like, can you actually consider it a national championship when you have all the other teams who are not playing this year? It's just, it's weird. But at least there's some sports going on. So there's- It's nice being able to watch something. Mm Mm-hmm. Probably just stick two SEC teams in a national championship game. That's what everybody wants anyways. That's okay. That's my husband's argument is that <laughs> all right, when you look at actually who makes it, it's just the SEC. So it's okay that like Pac-12 is all out anyways. All right. Well, now that we've alienated 75% of the country. <laughs> <laughs> so what we were thinking about tonight in terms of topics for the podcast, if this is okay with the two of you, is talking about how to uh, ease into knowledge of wealth. And you think about kind of families and wealth and, and going from one generation to the next. What, what, at a very practical level, you know, what do you do to make that transition happen? So I was thinking we could get into talking about family meetings, talking about different types of family kind of co-investment or group investment, and then also talking about having investment within the family that's goals driven and and i think that maybe goes without saying but it's like family goals driven not just goals in general driven so if that uh, makes sense to the two of you then i think we should proceed along those lines yeah sounds great great so that's this is something we're seeing a lot of our clients want to address at an increasing rate so especially with everything going on in the world right now our clients who have built so much wealth and have amassed so much wealth over time, they're really focused on, you know, is there a state plan set up right? And how do they communicate their current wealth situation to the next generation, whether that's their kids, grandkids, or any of other individuals that there may be. So, you know, the first thing we like to do when communicating wealth between a family is, is develop a plan. So, you know, what's the goal of this communication? Do you want your kids to know everything? Do you want them to know just some things? And how do you kind of ease them into this new knowledge, this, you know, this powerful knowledge so that they're not just kind of dumbfounded after learning everything you've worked for and learning about everything you've worked for and just confused and think they just suddenly have a ton of money and can, you know, go buy 10 Ferraris or something like that. So you know, the, the first thing we really want to focus on is just developing these plans and developing your, your goals. So step one is usually working with your wealth team, whether that's your estate planner, your financial advisor, or both of them together. And, you know, how do you really want to build out this plan? And the next part is, who do you want there? Do you want it to be just your immediate family, their significant others, wives, husbands, you know, do you have a, do you have a rule, you know, no ring, no bring, something like that. So uh, we really want to be careful of who we're inviting to these, to these meetings. Another piece we want to um, really focus on is not just relaying the amount of dollars that you've accumulated, but really, you know, what are some of your values and stories that have helped you amass all of that wealth? Because we don't want kids or grandkids, whoever, whoever's in this meeting to, to just walk out and only be thinking about this number. You know, you want them thinking about bigger picture after you pass away. What do you, what do you want your kids to do with that money? Do you want them to spend it all? Do you want them to be philanthropic and, you know, kind of craft these different ideas and knowledge among the family? Yeah, I really like that. And part, part of the, the planning phase, usually for me with my clients is 
Now, this is not a this is not a discussion with everybody who's going to be at the meeting, but usually a discussion between me and kind of the main, usually higher generation folks. And that is, what's the agenda going to be? What are what are the goals? What are the topics that we want to be discussed? And what are the goals and outcomes that we want to achieve by having that discussion? So that we're all on the same page. So you know, I know what we're going to talk about. They know what we're going to talk about. I know what uh, conclusions we want to reach as a family group. They know what conclusions we want to reach as a family group. And then, you know, they know the the players. They know the people who are going to be in the meeting really well, intimately. And I don't know them as well. I'm more on the kind of technical side of it. And so we kind of combine our powers to be like, okay, you know, we want a particular outcome. Well, these are the mechanisms that can help do that. I help on the mechanism side. They help on the explaining the outcome side. And we just team up that way to come up with an agenda that then we follow. I mean, not we don't follow it militantly, but we follow the agenda uh, just to help lead the discussion and have a, a productive time together because it is time. Everybody's taking time out of their lives to, to join the meeting. Totally. And I, th- I think you hit the nail on the head there because you also, you don't want it to just be mom and dad and you want, you want your kids to listen. We all know kids don't always listen to mom and dad. So you want that outside party in the room too, to just like you said, be the technical figure and keep the meeting, <clears throat> excuse me, pick, keep the meeting on track and get the goals accomplished rather than, you know, the kids just kind of fiddling their thumbs after they figure out how much their parents are worth. So what you said, I'm, I'm totally on board with, and I think it's important to really introduce the whole team there. Yeah, I think that's really good. You, you introduce all the players, oftentimes with um, high net worth family groups, they have if they don't have their own people in-house, they at least have informally a team of advisors who are sort of the, the outside family office for the family. And you want everybody in the family to get to know those people uh, because they're going to be interacting with them more and more and more as people in, in higher generations uh, start passing away. And then uh, one thing that we did in, in one meeting that I thought was really nice is to just have a conversation about... Um, what did the family want the wealth to be able to do for everybody? You know, what, what did they want? And we actually assigned somebody the, the role of standing up at a whiteboard and writing out and everybody would say what they thought and what, you know, their ideas. I wanted to do this, you know, I want to support this. I want to support that. And then we wrote out this long list of everybody's ideas on what the, what the family wealth was supposed to do as a collective. And then we put that together for everybody after the meeting. So everybody had that as sort of like the cliff notes of, all right, this was, this is what we decided at the meeting. These are everybody's goals and this is the direction we're headed. Absolutely. It's really important to facilitate those values and those goals among everyone. And, and it's also important to have those conversations, but also be educational about the situation, you know, teaching your kids about basic estate planning tools like revocable trusts. Uh, powers of attorney and then irrevocable trust or other other pieces of the puzzle because then they can kind of piece together on you know what does their situation look like and what will it look like down the road and how can we bring those values to life so that's that's a big part of where I like to think you and I would come in in these situations and, and really provide those technical aspects but break it down in a more simple form for for people learning absolutely and I think too it's really important to have these conversations you know 
depending on, on, you know, where the family's at, how many generations we have involved and obviously the ages of everyone, but really starting this conversation earlier with the younger generations rather than later, just so you can, like how you were saying, they get the idea of what the goals are for the, the family wealth. And then the kids from the get-go have an idea of, like you said, it's not just the number, right? It's not just what mom and dad's net worth is or grandma and grandpa's, whoever's. It's really, all right, this is the value of the money. This is kind of, this is how it's been generated. This is how the family has worked hard. This is how we want to preserve it. And it really teaches the kids from the start on, all right, this is truly what that meaning is. And this is how we can keep it going. And then like you said, AJ, too, when you bring in the other advisors and you have an estate planning advisor, then the kids are also are taught at uh, a younger age on, all right, this is really how I can preserve just even if, you know, I'm, I'm not entitled to any distributions, I'm not entitled to anything yet. This is how we can kind of start preserving wealth so that at the time when, hey, maybe I do get a distribution at, say, age 35, I know exactly what to do to keep that money protected from creditors or, you know, what have you. It's really funny. I actually had a friend growing up in college where everyone just always called him the trust fund baby. And everyone just knew that he had a trust fund coming at age 25. And that was pretty much all he knew. And that's like, he just said, yep, I've, I've got a good amount of coming, money coming towards me. And that was it. There was no knowledge. There was no knowledge on where did this money even come from? What is it supposed to be used for? What do I do once I get it? And so really having these conversations at an earlier age, like you're saying, getting advisors to help, you know, figure out what's the best way to invest this money, preserve it. How can I, you know, what, what can I do for myself that'll help me achieve my own goals? Those are the conversations that if they were just done a bit earlier, even at that college age, it could really help um, the younger generations keep that money going. Absolutely. And, and I really like what you said there about just driving home the point early, right? So it's not all about, you know, how do you feel and what are your values, which are totally important and, and very valid, but it's also how do you preserve this and how do you keep it growing? So there's the educational piece as well. And, you know, I'm thinking of a couple of clients that we've had this conversation with recently and you can teach them everything's all of these goals and this knowledge by explaining different vehicles, whether you have a family investment group, whether it's a family partnership or you introduce charitable investments like a donor advised fund. Um, we also have clients that have really focused on impact investing with, with their kids. So they're learning the power of, saving and continuously investing over time, whether it's in public markets or private areas. But the point is you're learning about saving and not just, you know, being the stereotypical quote unquote trust fund baby that is blowing all their cash uh, at, you know, whether it's bars in college or anything else. Yeah. So I had a, a meeting with a family not too long ago and they are farmers or I'd say the, the family industry is farming historically. So we were sitting around the table, it's, it's everybody, everybody, it's sort of mom and dad and all the kids, not the grandkids, but you know, all the, all the adult kids. And I looked around the table, I said, well, how many, how many of you actually farm? Everybody points at one person. So how many of you are never going to farm and don't want to farm? Every other hand goes up. It's like, well, how you, you're not farmers anymore. So when you're not farmers, then what's the plan? And how does that change the way we're going to structure things and the way that you're going to do things in the future? Do you want every, you know, do you want to say that own some property and you want to sell the property? Are you just going to split that up or do you want to 
kind of keep it in a pool and invest it together and, and let it grow together. You know, what is the goal? And I don't think they'd ever really thought about that. Certainly not as a collective group from all the faces around the table. Uh, I don't think they had really had that conversation or thought about it, but those are the kinds of conversations you have to have, even when uh, the family doesn't have a lot of liquid wealth, you know, maybe they have a business or they have real estate or something else that's not as liquid. Uh, they've got to be thinking about, well, even just because one generation did it one way, does that mean the next generation has to do it the exact same way? And if they're, if the next generation is going to do it a different way, what's that way? And are there good and bad ways to do it? The last thing we want in these situations is to have the parents or the, or the grandparents, whoever that first generation of wealth is, is if they could, if they could see into the future, be disappointed in how, and how the next and the future generations are spending the money. So one thing we really like to do after these meetings we have with clients about you know, this, this easing into the knowledge of wealth conversation is we like to follow up with the kids after. We, we let the parents do it first. But we like to follow up with the kids and say, you know, how did learning about this wealth make you feel? Are you surprised by the numbers you saw? And do you have any new thoughts? We've seen everything from shock to, I knew they were wealthy. We're, we're good. We'll, we'll keep, you know, moving, and do, moving along and doing our own thing. Um, so it's really important to have those one-on-one conversations after to really hammer home the points you were trying to get through the meeting. Yeah, I think that's really good. Really good. It's, and it, it's, a, it's probably a conversation that's easier for a financial advisor to have than, say, the lawyers to have because the lawyers have ethical rules where, you know, maybe we don't represent everybody. We have a conversation with somebody. It might not necessarily be uh, confidential if they're not our client. They may have an expectation that it creates an attorney-client priv- uh, privilege or attorney-client relationship that we don't want because we want to maintain some separation from from the perspective of who we represent and conflicts of interest and things like that. So it's a little bit harder for the lawyers to do that dance among everybody. I think it's a little easier for the financial advisors and the financial advisors are really well advised. I mean, first they're smart, you know, they're like smart people. They know what they're talking about and they're well positioned to have those kinds of conversations with a broad range of people. Absolutely. And, and you, you did touch on something very important and, and that each family is different. So it's important that you work with your team. And as you mentioned, more likely in this case, the financial advisor to establish, hey, what do I want to share? What's open book and what's closed book? So I'm thinking of a recent conversation that we had with a client and they were completely transparent. And what we did is we set up the meeting so that we'd go all the, through the specifics, not only their estate plan structure, but how each vehicle is allocated differently from an investment standpoint. So whether it's items out of their estate are poised for maximum growth over time, or whether it's structuring tax-efficient assets in in IRA accounts. But we, we really got into granular details with the family. But after the meeting, the parents made it clear that, you know, we're not to talk about their personal stuff with the kids without without them there. And we think it's really important to hammer home those expectations with your advisor before any meetings take place. Yep. So here's something that I hear from time to time. I'm curious to hear kind of how you handle this situation, AJ, which is uh, you kind of have say wealthy parents and then kids who aren't wealthy, right? Cause they're just, you know, they're maybe in the thirties or forties, but they're, they're working. They're, they're just in the, in the labor market. 
And what you get from the kids when you kind of try to have a conversation with them about, like, you know, you kind of need to do your own planning because, you know, eventually at some point what your parents have is coming your way. And I say, yeah, but I don't really have anything right now. So there's nothing really I need to do. So what we do in those situations is we show the power of investing early and often over time. Our firm, we're not the kind of firm that calls you with a hot stock tip of the day. We're a long-term wealth management firm. So that's not, we're never going to call you and say, hey, it's the time to buy Apple or it's the time to get out of the market. We're wealth managers and we think of ourselves as kind of the quarterback of this relationship between your tax accounts and your estate planners. And we, we're here for long-term growth. So everyone's got to start somewhere. And starting early and often is the way, is the way to success. And we show we can show graphical representations to these, to these kids about how to save, how to budget, um, how often should you be adding to your investment account? Are you invested okay in your 401k? It's really just that educational piece that can show kids that starting early can, will build your wealth. It's a, it's a proven process over time. Yeah, I really like that. And I think you know, even for you know, at the kid level, if there's somebody who's still, they're just getting into the labor work market, they're, they're just starting to kind of accumulate some money, like, well, they probably don't know all the ins and outs of making contributions to their 401ks or IRAs or Roths, or they don't know all the options with, uh, you know, they don't know what a backdoor Roth is, or they don't know, you know, they don't, just don't know what all these little techniques are. And, what they need is someone to put an arm around their shoulder and say, this is how it's done. These are the benefits of doing it. And then I think as you're alluding to the light bulb can go off and they can see like, Oh wow. Well, even though I'm in the beginning stages, I can be doing things right now that when you start projecting it out over a long period of time are going to be hugely beneficial. And it's really about getting them educated. So it's, it's not, it's having them not worry about is the market going to go down next month? Because when you're young, it, doesn't matter to it or it shouldn't matter to I should say it's all about early and often investing more about time in the market than timing the market we always like to say so that education piece is is really big and, and leaning on your advisor is a prudent move to make for for young adults so most people for example most people leaving their first job will immediately think hey I should roll over my 401k to an IRA well if they're on a track that they won't be able to contribute directly to a Roth IRA in the future, there are tax benefits to rolling it into the new company's 401k. And that's something that you can work with your advisor on. And it's a, it's a really good tax planning strategy for future tax-free savings. Yeah, I, I like that. I think it's about educating people on their options. And then under their specific facts and circumstances, they can make decisions that matter for them. Well, so I've got kind of a the flip side question going off of like Brent's um, to you, AJ. So we've had a few clients before that have told us, you know, we've, we've just set up, say, their revocable trust. They good, to, good to go. Got a great estate plan, and they've told us we don't want our children to know anything, and we we don't want them to know anything because they're not entitled to anything. They don't need to know about it because we could completely change it, you know, in a couple of years if, if say, they make us really angry or something. So, kind of, what? How do you advise those clients on, you know? trying to educate your children into, you know, easing into their wealth is kind of the way to go. But how, how would you approach that situation where someone is a little bit more opposed to letting their kids know all the information? 
That's a great question. And we certainly have our fair share of clients that feel that way. It's actually a little bit more rare that all clients would want to share that information. So it's, it's a pretty even split. What I will say is what I'll tell those clients or what I do tell those clients is really that they want to have at least a very sound estate plan in place. And we want to have their assets titled appropriately and consolidated and simplified to the extent possible. So we don't want account, we don't want six different accounts that have the same titling in different places because it's going to be a nightmare for those kids who don't have, who haven't been introduced to everything to consolidate everything and to be, you know, whether they're the trustee or the executor, whatever title that they have, we don't want to add to that, that burden on their already emotional burden. So it's all about simplification where possible and getting everything titled appropriately. So when that time comes, it can all of the assets can flow smoothly and according to your plan. I've worked with a couple of clients this last year that it's been kind of the opposite or it's been this example that you're talking about and, and whether it's the husband or the, or the wife that passed away, the surviving spouse in this case, and I know it's not the next generation, but it speaks to the point of simplicity is that the surviving spouse was really tasked with a tough a tough assignment of gathering all the data and pulling everything together. And we do a lot on our end in terms of getting everything retitled appropriately and moving the assets where we can. But the reality is, is it's only as easy as the decedent makes it. Oh my gosh, I can't agree more. And you and I have talked about this too, where we've just had cases that, like you said, it's, it's a surviving spouse or a parent and there's like 10 different life insurance policies, and then you have five different IRAs, you've got annuities, you've got um, bank accounts at three different banks. And at some point, it's just going through the mail, seeing what statements are coming in, just to figure out where are all of the assets. So I, I can't agree with you more that if, you know, if a client is, is not willing to share all the information to whoever, next generations, then really it's, all right, Let's, let's get this down pat. Let's get it simple. Let's make sure that you're going to set it up so that you do have a little bit of asset protection involved for the next generation. And that's really kind of how it's going to, the next generation will be able to receive that wealth and then hopefully do something great with it. Absolutely. And, and one thing I do think that would be helpful for these clients that are struggling with explaining their wealth to the next generation is at least have some kind of ledger or spreadsheet it doesn't have to have the values of each account, but the titles of each account and where they're held. So that way, you know, when the time comes, it's easier to track everything down and you don't have that feeling of relief a month in if you're settling the estate that everything's done, but then you get a statement from another account you didn't know about. So really important to have kind of a roadmap called of all of your assets and where they, where they are. So at least it's able to be found. So sometimes I see a reluctance on the part of clients to let say, let the kids know how much money there is because they feel like, well, if the kids know how much money there is, it'll kill their ambition. They'll, you know, they'll stop going to school or they'll quit work or whatever. Imagine bad scenario. That's, you know, that's something that somebody has said to me about that circumstance. But that is a, that's an assumption of an kind of all or nothing outcome where everything is dumped onto the child. And it doesn't have to be done that way. You can make gifts, much smaller gifts, but significant gifts, uh, but smaller gifts and 
use it as a little bit of a test run, you know, give them some money, see how it goes, see, you know, what do they do with that? And I've, I have clients who have done that, who kind of had these questions in their mind. We did smaller gifts. Everything went great. And then we decided to do bigger gifts after that. And everything has gone great with the bigger gifts. And I think just seeding that, that plan, seeing how everybody uh, reacts and then having the conversations to educate on, okay, you're getting some money, but there's an expectation when you get the money, not, not in a negative way, but there's an expectation that you're going to be responsible with it. And this is how you can use it responsibly. Absolutely. And what what's re- a really good strategy for doing that is if possible, you can fund Roth IRA contributions for your kids when they're younger. So see how they work with that. Like you said, Brent, you know, do, do they want to, do they have an interest in investing? And if they do, let them play around with it. Let them, you know, kind of explore the, the investing world and learning about growth or learning the hard way about picking individual stocks per se. So it's a really interesting idea that a lot of our clients do take advantage of. And those, those yearly contributions to the Roth, five years later, you can see how much that's grown. Or like you said, kind of easing into it with the small gifts and then a larger gift if the kids are proving that they can handle the money in an appropriate manner. Something that I'm actually working on, I'm working on with clients right now is we've got clients who've made some large gifts to their kids and working with each kid and how they've handled this differently and each kind of carried on the values that their parents have taught them has been really fulfilling for us because we've been working with the family for a while, but also the whole family's happy because they've, it's worked. Your ideas work. They started with smaller gifts and they eased into the big ones and it's, it's worked very well for, for this family. Yeah. And I love, I love the idea of uh, funding Roth contributions. I think one, it's easy to do, assuming that the, the child can make, contributions to Roth accounts. And two, as you say, like, it's not, it's a small enough amount of money, typically that you're not going to do too much damage. And the child's not going to do too much damage either, you know, even even if they're totally reckless with the money. uh, You know, it's just the the possibility for mischief is very low, but the the possibility for education and learning is very high too. So, well, what about, unless you want to talk about that some more, but what I was thinking maybe let's transition then and talking about because we're t- we're talking a little bit on an individual person by person level. But maybe let's let's flip it and say, all right, now what about doing things as a collective group? You know, what sorts of investment or or charitable opportunities are there? So there's a ton of opportunities to work as a family together on some investments, and it really boils down to what are the goals of the family for these group investments. So we have some clients that are very charitably inclined. So they might want to open up a donor advised fund. And and a benefit of that is you can donate to this fund that the whole family can oversee together and you can invest the assets in that fund. So it'll teach them investing over time, but also you can outline a few or you can, but also you can make donations from this fund to a bunch of different charities. And it's a nice activity for the family to do that together. And it really shows, you know, which different causes are important to them. And so it's, it's kind of a, a two for a two for one deal there. So you can teach investments while also teaching your values. And that's something that it's kind of like a step one that we often do with our clients because they'll still control it, but they're easing into that knowledge for their, for the next generation. And it's fun. You can, you can name the donor advice fund anything you want. John Smith and Families Fund or the Smith Family Fund or whatever it may be. So 
it's a really good way to have the whole family all together on a common goal. I really like that. And I think to a lot of families, you know, they come and it's how do we set up our legacy? You know, or, or I've had a, a friend recently uh, who's her, her business, they wanted to start up um, a charitable fund. And it's like, all right, how do we start this legacy? And um, it was a family business, so she wants to keep it going on. And I think that's a really great way to kind of bring everyone on the same page and create that legacy. Uh, well, and for that for that particular client, I think I think I'm thinking of the the same group, Rachel. You know, for them, it wasn't so much a uh, well, we're gonna we're gonna come in and do a bunch of very expensive legal work. I don't have a problem with people who want me to do expensive legal work, but mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't that we were going to jump in and, and recommend a bunch of uh, expensive legal work. We just sort of listened to what it was that they were trying to do and decided, you know what? the easiest way for you to do this with the least amount of hassle and the least amount of expense on your side is to go team up with the community foundation. And, Cause they, you know, the thing you're describing is something that they're super efficient at doing and they love doing. And so you can just go team up with them. And now you've got a really slick way to uh, manage your charitable goals without outlaying a bunch of extra expenses that you'll never get back. And so your money's going more towards uh, the charitable outcomes that you were wanting to fund anyways. And I think it worked out pretty well for them. Yeah, exactly. I think that's, that's a big thing to point out is that creating a charitable legacy does not have to be expensive. You don't have to pay all the advisors and all the attorneys, all the extra money to do it. There, there are ways that you can do it where it is simple and you get your goal accomplished. Again, I want to emphasize that if anybody wants to pay <laughs> there you go. A lot of legal fees. I like that's cool. I'm not against that. It's just uh, it's not Plan A all the time. So for our clients that aren't as charitably inclined, or at least don't love the idea of opening up a donor advice fund, if they're still charitably inclined, there are ways to do that through effective estate planning, like making a charity the beneficiary of your IRA or something along those lines. And there's a ton of different tax benefits that your estate planning attorney or your advisor can, can explain. But in terms of other family group investments, we've seen some families work together in a family partnership. And what they'll do is they'll really just come up with a, a strategy that they want to build out within the family of, of investments. And that can be a mixture of stocks, bonds, or anything in the middle with alternative investments. But it's really a good way to teach the investment philosophy of the family to the next generation. And a lot of times what we'll see is we'll see an investment policy statement drafted where, you know, the, the first generation, whether it's the grandparents or the parents will, will draft kind of like a, they'll draft an outline of like allowable investments and then they'll work with the family to choose what's best for them and what's best for their, for achieving their goals. And the goals can be anything from, you know, purchasing homes for the kids or purchasing, um, an extra house for the next generation to all be together at or something along those lines. So it's, it's really case by case, but if a person or if a person's not interested in opening up a charitable account or teaming up with a local foundation, they can absolutely work with families in in a different way. Yeah. And I really like family partnerships or, or family LLCs. So I, and I actually think they're underutilized. Uh, I don't think they're overutilized. So 
they they're underutilized now because estate tax and gift tax and generation skipping transfer tax exemptions are very very high and so the traditional uh, way that they were used was you would pool money in the family partnership you would make gifts of interest in the family partnership and then when you go to value each gift you get a discount on the valuation so you know you gift away a third but on that third you get a 30 percent discount for lack of a ready market, or you get a, a discount for the fact that a third is not a controlling interest in the entity. So if you shop that on an open market, no third party who's unrelated to you would be willing to pay you a pro rata uh, price of one third of the underlying assets, they would pay you a discount. And it's based on a bunch of market data. And some of that comes out of the options markets and things. So that was traditional planning. And when the exemptions went really high, I think what happened was people said, okay, well, that means family partnerships are not, not useful anymore because the focus was so much on transfer tax planning. And I actually think it's the opposite, that all along the benefit was doing the type of planning, AJ, that you're talking about and the ability to pool resources together, to not strip resources into different directions, to pool them together and invest together. Because when you, when you do that, you're able to invest usually for a, a lower price. Most investment advisors, I'm curious to hear how you guys do it, but most investment advisors, if they're gonna charge a fee, the fee is based on the value of investments that are under management. And as the value goes up, the fee goes down. So actually the lower the value, the higher the percentage. So if they're not nice and they're not aggregating family groups, you could have, if you split all the money out, you could actually invest it in the same place and pay a higher investment fee than had you pooled it together. Again, if the advisors aren't nice and pooling it already. So there's that, that benefit. And then actually I saw today, there's, I can't remember if it was a change or proposed change by the SEC in the accredited investor rules and the accredited investor rules are, are securities rules that basically rule out most of uh, everybody based on income or net worth parameters from investing in a lot of alternative investments. And the accredited investor, uh, the change to the accredited investor rule, I, I think one of the changes that I saw was that uh, an LLC that has $5 million of assets will be deemed an accredited investor Whereas you used to have to look at the owners of the LLC and the owners had to be accredited investors, not the entity itself. So now if you have an LLC and it has $5 million in it and you break up the $5 million, it could be that the individual owners are not accredited investors. Whereas if they keep their money together, they are. And now there's a much larger investment market that's open to them because they've kept the money together. So I actually think this pooling and co-investing feature of family partnerships is the underutilized component that, that people should be thinking about. All the estate tax and gift tax and generation skipping tax stuff is, is secondary to this pooling benefit, in my mind, anyways. Couldn't agree anymore. Um, if that, it, it certainly opens up a lot of opportunities for with those lower accredited investor minimums or, or I guess different rules per se. But I, I think what you said earlier makes makes a lot of sense about in, in unintentionally almost sim drives home that point of simplification that we talked about earlier, because like you said, if everything is pooled together in one place, it's just even easier rather than having scattered accounts through different entities in different places. So I think it was, it was twofold what you said, the benefits of com not commingling funds, but keeping everything in one place. And 
you you mentioned or you asked how we would classify those assets. We don't when we work with a family, we have this mindset, whether they're a new client or an existing client, that we're going to be working with them for decades and generations. So we are not in the business of separating taxable entities and charging them different rates. It's, it's all one umbrella for us. And, you know, what we, our fee methodology aligns directly with our clients' interests. So we get paid more when our clients do better. And when our clients do worse, we get paid less. And that's, that's a really important thing to mention to anyone, for anyone who's looking for advice in anything, you want to make sure that the person that you're looking to hire has interests directly aligned with you and that they're going to act in your best interest, which is called the fiduciary duty. Yeah, I like that. You're nice. You're, you fit in the nice category that I described. <laughs> I'm a nice uh, guy. Yeah, well, yeah, of course. <laughs> the, the, the other thing that uh, maybe we should talk about then is uh, if you're going to pool your money together... I mean, this obviously applies on an individual level too, but if you're going to pool your money together, then understanding or making everybody understand what the true value of money is, say current value, present value versus future value, and under, just understanding how powerful pooling the money together and investing it over a long duration really can be. And that goes back to the educational piece of, of compounding interest over time and, and how the value of the dollar will decline over time, which, call, which is called inflation. But the, on the opposite end, compounding returns, how those are going to help grow your assets more and more over time. And it's important to, to see, you know, what are you, what are you saving for and how are you going to get to that goal the most efficient way possible? And efficient in terms of investments and taxes and simplicity, they all need to come together and form kind of a cohesive plan. And that's when you develop your strategy. Yeah, so I was having a conversation with a client and – high net worth client, they had about $30 million. And the conversation was around kind of doing some of the, this planning and thinking about the long term. And the question was, well, what's the money going to be worth in the long term? And I was like, you know, do you know? They didn't really know. I said, well, if it grows, if it compounds at 5%, just not an unreasonable rate of return for somebody like AJ, you know, 5% over 20 years, that money is worth $78 million. 78 is a much different prospect than 30. And so understanding what can happen when you start stretching things out over long time horizons, if it's pooled together and if it's managed carefully, uh, can be pretty powerful, mathematically at least. And that's the importance of showing and illustrating those long-term projections per se over time. So the way we work with most of our clients is we'll work to develop what we can work with them on anything from just their portfolio. And sometimes we can do a, a detailed cash flow analysis that will actually illustrate over time what those numbers look like. Because like you said, in your example, 78 is a really big number. And when you see it on paper, it's even bigger. Um, so it's important to really understand how things are going to look over time and how to get there. So if it's okay, can we, I want to loop back just a little bit on the charitable planning. We had talked just a little bit about well, what if the client isn't, they're charitable, but they're not so charitable, you know, they're charitable to an extent, but they're not going to give everything to charity. And I think oftentimes when people think about charitable giving or legacy type charitable giving, they, they do think in terms of big, big numbers or small little bits, like I'm just going to give a little bit here, or when I die, we'll give $20,000 to local charity. And that's not in every instance, but in a lot of cases, that's like the worst way to do 
charitable planning. So most people who are invested and have been invested for a while, or maybe, you know, have been given equity through work or, or some other way, uh, they have assets that are appreciated assets. So for those clients who have a charitable inclination, just not a hundred percent charitable inclination, what we've done for them is say, great, let's take your highly appreciated asset that you're trying to get out of and diversify anyways, we'll flip it into a charitable remainder trust. We'll sell it in the trust. You'll get a tax deduction. We'll set it up. So you're going to get back 90% of the value. 10% is going to go to charity. That's the maximum ratio you can do. And everything that's in the trust can grow tax-free and you can defer picking up the capital gains until it actually gets paid out to you from the trust. That's a little bit different of a prospect. The idea of, okay, we can do some planning. I can get something out of it. In fact, I can get a lot of something out of it. And I get a tax benefit, even though I'm clawing back 90% of what I'm putting in. And we've, we've done that to, I think, good success for clients. And then on the back end, the 10% goes to their donor advice fund. And so essentially the money falls into a pocket that they, they don't, legally control, but they at least direct and advise on. And usually the sponsoring charity is going to listen to them anyways. And so they can, they can have a hand in, in picking who gets that money, that charitable money. And then that pot of money, that 10% can grow and be invested and become that legacy pot for charitable planning in the future. That's a, that's a great example of a, of a detailed estate planning and, or it's of, of a detailed estate planning strategy. We, we, work with a few charitable remainder trusts for a few of our clients. We don't have a ton of them, but we've worked with them a good amount in the past. And, and it really is a case-by-case basis of when you, when you want to use it and when it makes the most sense. And that's where it's really important to work with your advisor and your attorney on how to draft those documents. Yeah, we're the same. Very case-by-case. It's, it's almost opportunistic. Uh, when the right set of facts pop up, then we know, okay, we could fit into... This is this opportunity. If the client wants to do it, great. If they don't want to do it, also great. It doesn't bother me. Uh, They get to decide and whatever they decide, then we'll go for it as long as it's not illegal. Uh, That's my my usual baseline. If it's fraud or it's illegal, I'm not going to do that. But pretty much everything else, we can be creative. (laughs) And that creativity is really what makes us feel good is when the clients are walking out happy and feeling that they got a, a truly unique and customized result from our, from our meeting. And, and, that's, that's really what we're working for here. Well, can you, can you then uh, talk a little bit about helping the families create those goals and create investment plans and investment goals that then they're going to be working towards? Yeah. So our first question is, what do you, what do you want to do with this money? So if it's, if it's a charitable fund, that's going to charity. And how do you want, you know, what's, what's your time horizon? Do you want to give this to charity in the next year, the next 20 years, a little bit each year? How do you want to do that? If it's not a charitable account, what we'll do is we'll say, you know, do you foresee needing this money in the next five or 10 years? And what do you want to do with the money? I mentioned earlier an example. Do you want to buy a second home for the family for the next generation where all the grandkids can play with grandma and grandpa at the pool or something like that? It's really, it's entirely case by case. But one thing that's important to do is you really want to get to your goal with the least volatility possible. So there's always going to be some risk with investing, right? But you don't want to put all of your eggs in one basket and really hope for maximum growth if there's a chance you need that money soon because 
you know, if we see what we saw in late February, early March, when the market suddenly dropped, well, where are those funds now? And you don't want to have to sell them at a bad time. So there's a ton of different ways to mitigate that risk, but still get growth. And that's kind of how we back into our strategy of, of what we're going to own and where we're going to own it. I like that. And pay off everybody's student loans. That would be the best. <laughs> Those are great families. That takes a big old burden off. I'm just speaking from experience. My parents did not pay mine off, but it would be lovely if they did. It's, it's interesting that those kinds of conversations, sorry, I deviated a bit on the student loan thing because I knew I was going to get a reaction out of, out of Rachel. <laughs> uh, but having, having the kind of conversations that you're talking about, AJ, is, is almost like a framing conversation. Uh, it's like, if you don't know what the frame is, how do you know what furniture is? You can't even pick the furniture that's going in the house if you don't know what the frame is going to look like. And you have to do the framing conversation first before you even get to the, the real detailed nitty gritty pieces. And I think too, it's a good point how you're saying, it's, you know, you have to look at both short-term goals and the long-term goals. You know, we've seen a lot of clients where, you know, they just sold their business or they just sold a, a product that they invented. And now it's, I'm traveling in Europe for the next three to four years. And that's all I'm doing. It's like, all right, well, let's plan for that scenario. Or there's others that like, you know what? I just sold this business. Now I want to do a completely new business. And it's like, all right, well, let's take that into consideration as well. And so it's, it's really just not only do you want for future generations and if you want to preserve that wealth or give it away to charity, whatever it may be, but what are you doing in the next, like you said, five to 10 years and how do we make sure all of those goals are going to be met as well? It's all about backing into your plan based on your overall goals. Totally with you there. So let me, let me uh, throw one thing that I see that I think is the opposite of a plan, which is um, little old ladies who have IRAs and somebody has sold them a deferred annuity inside the IRA. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you can see me clenching my feet from here, but uh, it's, it's never ideal to say the least. It's not my favorite. When I see it, uh, I think about punching somebody and I don't like having those moments. That's, not, that's an unhealthy way to live. <laughs> It's really about understanding what you're investing in and, and why. And, and we, we've all seen those situations and it's, it's unfortunate. You know, you, we really look, want to look out for the best of our clients. And it's hard when we see an, a new client or a new prospect, I should say, come on board with this terrible annuity that's just riddled with fees or something like that. And, you know, I can't say, I'm not going to say all annuities are bad. I guess, you know, there's a time and a place for everything but it's important to really understand your overall picture and, and how that would fit in the case or into your picture if, if you were to buy an annuity. Yeah, I, I, I'm kind of with you. I have a hard time with most commercial annuities. In terms of, of kind of goals-based planning, I mean, if, if somebody's goal is to generate a certain amount of income, I guess I can see the logic of buying an immediate annuity if you think that you're going to beat the life expectancy table and therefore you're going to get more out of it than you actually put in or that you would get out of say an equivalent bond fund or something else, you know, maybe, maybe that's right. Maybe it's a, you know, it's a little bit of a, of a gamble and you're willing to take the gamble. Maybe I could see that, but that's the only scenario that I've seen uh, annuities pitched where I thought like, okay, there's a reasonable basis for this. I don't know that I agree with every premise that's being proposed, but I, it's better than the deferred annuity with the, you know, 
thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollar uh, advisor load up front. It's all about investing your assets efficiently and effectively. And ninety nine point nine percent of the times, we're not fans of annuities either. So we we share that opinion with you. But that's really where it comes into you know understanding what your money is being invested in because there's ways to get the same return, but on an after tax basis, for example, could be much much better. And there's there's way there's so many different strategies that can come together and build wealth, whether it's communicating it to the next generation or for yourself, that's important to understand. It's not only about what you own, but where you own it. Yeah, I guess that gets back, AJ, to what you were talking about of once you understand the goals, then it's about backing into the goals. Because say, you know, let's say your goal is I'm gonna retire, I need X amount of dollars a month in retirement, and then backing into that and figuring out, okay, how do you do it? How do you do it from the perspective of what options are available to you? How do you do it from a perspe- the perspective of what's sufficient from a, for taxes? How do you do it from the perspective of what's the likelihood of your expenses going up in the future and taking all those things into consideration? We're on the same page with that. <laughs> Good. <laughs> well, AJ, I, uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, it's been an interesting conversation to me. I think this is a, a really important topic. I, just the communication and education is so critical. And it's, to me, the, the, uh, the linchpin to making dynastic wealth work. And without it, it, it works sometimes, but it's like by accident. Otherwise, it's you're, you're really rolling the dice. So this is such a critical component. So I really appreciate your, uh, your time and expertise. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for having me. This was great. And uh, hopefully you, all you listening found it, uh, found it helpful and interesting. Where can people find you? What, what's your uh, contact particulars? So you can find us at, or you can find me at stratwealth.com. We're at, I work at Strategic Wealth Partners, as you mentioned earlier. We're an independent investment firm out in Deerfield, Illinois, suburb of Chicago. We're not native to the Tucson area, but we're, we're in Arizona a lot. A couple of our partners have houses there, and we're, we're frequent to the area. So looking forward to continue working with you guys and helping, uh, helping our clients get to where they want to be. Yeah, very good. Well, and we'll put uh, we'll put your contact information in the show notes as well. So anybody who wants to find AJ, uh, you can find him there. Uh, at hopefully everybody understands now why we wanted to have you on and and uh, why we're fancy yours. So thanks again, AJ. Absolutely, thanks, guys. Hey, listeners, thank you so much for spending time with us. Rachel and I both really appreciate it. We've really enjoyed doing the podcast. We're trying to do our best work and bring you valuable and useful information. And I hope you feel the same way. And if so, please subscribe to the podcast, leave us reviews, uh, subscribe to our blog if you want to follow us and see the sort of things that we write about. And also follow us on social media at Wealth and Law, basically everywhere that social media is. Thanks so much.